My name is Carrie Ginger, and your host of the Biteable Podcast, Know Better, Live Best. Today's guest is Sarah Wenzel Fisher. Sarah is the executive director of the Quivera Coalition, an innovative conservation organization devoted to building soil, biodiversity, and resilience on Western working landscapes. She is a committed champion of the local food movement and of resilient agriculture, has worked in food and agriculture planning for over a decade with a focus on supporting young and beginning farmers and ranchers. Listen as Sarah teaches us about the Quivera Coalition and how they foster ecological, economic, and social health through education, innovation, and collaboration. Know Better Live Best is dedicated to supporting food and health literacy in people of all ages. Our mission is to cut through the misinformation surrounding food, health, and nutrition because we believe that when people know better, they can make the right choices and live their best lives. We are presented by Biteable Foods. They use blockchain and Internet of Things technology to build traceable, transparent food systems because it shouldn't take an investigative journalist to find out where food comes from. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Well, for all the listeners out there, I'm here with Sarah Wenzel Fisher, and she is the executive director of the Quivera Coalition. So we are very happy to have you on tonight, and I know the listeners are going to learn a ton from you. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for us? Tell us a little bit about your background. Um, So uh, I uh, grew up in western South Dakota. Um, in a little town called Custer in the Black Hills. Um, When uh, I was 13, my family moved to Ames, Iowa, where I went to high school, and I um, didn't stick around there for very long. I um, moved when I was 17 to start adventuring, and I did that for a little bit and ended up um, landing in New Mexico and staying here. so I have a bachelor's degree in English and creative writing, and then I got a master's degree in community and regional planning, both from the University of New Mexico. Um, and I've lived here for over 20 years now and um, have done a variety of different projects, all related to uh, food and farming and land stewardship um, primarily based here in New Mexico, but um, increasingly my work is uh, focused more west-wide. So what brought you to New Mexico, I mean, all the way from Iowa? Um, It was a very arbitrary teenage decision. Uh, I was ready to go to school. I wanted to be someplace where there was sunshine and mountains, and they had interesting... um, they had interesting uh, cultural studies programs, which I didn't end up really utilizing, but that's what brought me here. Um, and the landscape is what's kept me here, I think. So I so obviously loved it and you're still going strong, strong yeah. there. Yes. So tell us a little bit about how you support young um, and beginning farmers. Well, um, I have supported young and beginning farmers in a number of different ways over the last 10 years. Um, I would say sort of my interest was picked um, during my graduate work. I did a graduate thesis looking at the economic viability of small direct market farms in the middle Rio Grande. Um, I live in Albuquerque and the city of Albuquerque Um, is a city that is built around agriculture. We have um, an irrigation system that runs along the Rio Grande River, which runs through the middle of the city. And so 
we're really blessed with a lot of small direct market farms here. And I wanted to understand if they were economically viable. Uh, and so I did a series of, uh, I did qualitative research. And what that ended up being is a lot of interviews with farmers. And so I ended up befriending a lot of beginning farmers through that project and um, hearing about their struggles and their challenges. And that really inspired what has now become a decade's worth of work trying to figure out how to create um, fewer bar or reduce barriers and create better points of entry for young people who want a life in agriculture. So your path has been pretty amazing. What brought you on this journey that you've had? Um, well, when I think about what, when I think about food and I think about farming, um, I think that part of it is growing up in the Black Hills. Uh, it was a place that, it, it wasn't exactly a food desert, but it was a place where a lot of people had to produce a lot of their own food. Like I remember going to the grocery store as a kid and, you know, in the winter months, there wasn't a lot of produce there. And uh, my mom always had a giant garden and we put up a lot of food. Um, we would have buying clubs in the winter where, you know, we would, as a community, order boxes of produce uh, <laughs> from California. Um, and uh, so I think that that was one point that sort of inspired me to think about food and agriculture. Um, I'm going to look at my notes really quickly. <laughs> um, I think the second place was right when I, I left uh, home as a teenager, I, I took a job and I was a nanny in Washington, DC for about a year. And um, I did the grocery shopping for the household where I was doing childcare. And it was amazing because there were, I think five or six different places that I would go to, to get our food. It was like an Italian grocer. There was a green grocer. Um, I would shop at the farmer's market and prior to being there, I don't think that I had an awareness sort of about the diversity of food. Um, there's also a lot of ethnic food in DC from a lot of different countries. And I think that that experience really opened my eyes to the diversity of food and, you know, all the different ways that people cook. And, um, so I think that that inspired my work a little bit and, and food and agriculture are definitely very connected <laughs> in, in my heart and in my mind. Um, and so, yeah, I think those are some of the formative things that brought me to the work. Um, and then of course my master's thesis, um, really, you know, spending some quality time with, uh, farmers in the area where I live, um, really gave me a deeper appreciation for the land here and a deep, deeper appreciation for the food that it can produce. Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting to you know that, you know, each choice you made or each um, decision you made for your job brought you closer to what you're doing right now. Like you said, it sparked your interest and in, yes, agriculture, food, it's all hand in hand health. And I think it's amazing that the journey, this is brought us to. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of the Quivira Coalition? Sure. So um, I will say that I've been with the Quivira Coalition for a little over four years, um, but the organization itself was founded in 1997. So there's like 
a really rich history there that I have the stories of, but I'm not, uh, you know, did not directly experience. Um, but it was founded by uh, two conservationists who were working for uh, the Sierra Club and a rancher. And um, it was founded on this idea of the radical center, um, which is uh, this idea of, of people working together uh, for a common interest, in this case, the health of the land. Um, and uh, that was a, the founding moment um, of the organization. Uh, and, and that inspired um, a series of community events where people were brought together in um, dialogue to talk about uh, the needs of the land and um, the needs of the, the producers who are making a living from the land uh, and, a, and the, the needs of the ecology. Um, and from there, there were actually a number of, of really hands-on projects. We started with erosion control um, because erosion is an enormous issue here in the West. Um, and so we would do projects on uh, ranches, sometimes public, uh, leased land um, to address address critical issues of erosion um, that were impacting the health of rangeland, um, and we we continue to do that work today. Um, but the the work of the organization I think has evolved and expanded um, from that time, sort of based on responding to the needs of livestock producers in the West. Wow. So, what would you say your mission is for the Quebrero Coalition? Um, I'm actually going to read something about our mission, if that's all right. Yes, so, please do. Uh, <laughs> uh, Kavira aims to shift current practices of agriculture and land stewardship to those that produce good food, support meaningful livelihoods in rural places, sustain biodiversity, and remedy the impacts of climate change. We do this work through agricultural apprenticeship, land and water restoration, and farm and rancher-led knowledge exchange. Um, so... I, you know, I think that our our mission is really about shifting agriculture from a model of extraction to one of regeneration, if that makes sense. Oh, it absolutely does. Although I'd probably say maybe even a few months ago, it might have been a little hazy, but um, I'm amazed at what I've I've learned. And so, yes, that did make sense to me. And, and we even had... Um, quite a few previous podcasts on this, on soil health, and we'll go into that in a little bit. But one of our biggest goals of the Biteable podcast is to provide awareness to the general public that healthcare, farming, environment, and culture are all connected, which we kind of talked about a few minutes ago. But sometimes people in cities can feel maybe a little disconnected from those in our rural landscapes, like I have been. Like I said, I, I'm on my journey and I've got it. But can you tell us a little bit why you think those living in the cities need to be more aware, maybe more supportive of the Quivira Coalition? Sure. Um, I, I mean, I guess there's a, there's a couple of things. Um, uh, maybe this will be my moment to share some statistics. <laughs> so um, agriculture, uh, if you think about the land mass of the United States, um, I think it's, it's uh, about 40% of that land is used for agriculture. And of that 40%, um, a significant portion uh, supports livestock grazing. 
Um, so that's rangelands and pastures and forests. Um, so, uh, and, and how those lands are managed really uh, dictates the health of our watersheds, um, biodiversity, the kind of food we're able to produce, and also carbon sequestration. And so I think that um, how we're supporting people who are stewarding a significant portion of our land is really critical for all of us. Um, and then some other statistics. Uh, the average age of a farmer or rancher in this country is 60 years old. Um, and so 100 years ago, more than 30% of our population, their primary uh, profession or their you know, primary source of income was farming. And today, less than 2% of our population is farming. And of that small number of folks who are farming, um, most of them are, I think 80% are 55 years or older. And less than 2% of that 2% is under the age of 35. So, um, you know, who stewards <laughs> our land in the future um, and how they get the information to, to be good stewards um, is right now at risk and um, it's really critical. And so the, the work that we do at Kavira, you know, we work with um, farmers and ranchers to help them understand how to increase their soil health um, through techniques like uh, grazing management, erosion control, uh, soil health monitoring. Um, but then we also have an apprenticeship program where we're trying to connect young people who want to do this work with, um, you know, veteran farmers and ranchers who really understand what, um, you know, making a living from the land and being good soil stewards looks like, because um, it's not an easy job either. <laughs> No, it actually sounds like it's a lot of work. I mean, fulfilling work, but it does take time to learn and even change your ways of what you've done in the past and getting newer farmers excited about what's to come in the future. Because that statistic seems pretty alarming. I don't think I realized it was as dire as it is with the amount of farmers. Yeah, I mean, I think that we are really... Um it's a, to me, it, it, it should be, you know, something that is on absolutely everybody's radar and, you know, we should be doing all we can to really help uh, young people um, enter careers in farming and um, also to be capturing the really critical knowledge that um, people who are at, towards the end of their careers in farming and ranching have about, you know, how a particular piece of land works because every piece of land is different. Um, where its water resources come from, what its soil is like, um, what its weather patterns are like, you know, all of those things, what kinds of things have been grown there. Um, and we're, you know, we don't, I don't think at, collectively as a society, we really have that prioritized the way that we should. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound like we do. Not, not with these stats. So for those of us in the city, what can we do to do our part? Because obviously we're not farming and we're living and using the land. What can we do to help? I think there are a lot of things that people in cities can do. Um, I mean, I think the first and most immediate is what we put on our dinner tables. I think that um, really understanding where our food comes from um, is, is critical and because um, most people live in cities and 
um, the number, like the percentage of people who live in cities is going to continue to increase, um, that it's really important for people who are there to be making choices about food that is produced in a way that is, um, you know, uh, prioritizing soil health, prioritizing biodiversity, uh, prioritizing um, keeping topsoil on the land, um, minimizing uh, chemical inputs that make people sick. Uh, all of those things are really important. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. And so, you know, using the tools that you've got to understand where your food comes from, you know, maybe it's about shopping at farmer's markets. So, you know, you can talk to those folks. You can go visit those farms. Um, you know, if you're shopping at the grocery store, uh, you know, really doing some homework and research about where food comes from. And, you know, I, I like to encourage people to support small and local producers, but, you know, that maybe isn't possible for all the things that we grocery shop for. Um, but there are also, you know, big companies that are increasingly doing really interesting, good work and that are trying to build supply chains that are prioritizing healthy soil. Um, there's a really interesting project called the uh, Healthy Soil Initiative. Um, I believe that's what it's called. Um, that uh, some really big companies like General Mills and Danone and McDonald's are uh, looking at what are soil health indicators and are trying to figure out how they can verify that their producers are engaged in practices that are using cover crops, are using um, good crop rotation, um, that are minimizing inputs, uh, that are doing other kinds of practices that build soil health. So um, I think, you know, just tuning into the issue is, is a big one. Um, I think reducing food waste is critical also. Uh, food waste is sort of the elephant in the room um, in, the in this conversation. And, um, you know, 40% of what gets produced on farms gets wasted. Um, and it's appalling. And, uh, you know, it really exacerbates the problem on so many different levels. Um, you know, everything from just all of the work and energy and fossil fuels that went in to produce that food in the first place to the, you know, methane emissions that it produces by being put into a landfill. Um, so I think that, you know, just being conscientious about what you buy at the grocery store and making sure that it's not more than you need is a great thing that uh, people in cities can do. And then I think that the last thing I'll say on that point is just to, um, Think about ways that you can be a citizen advocate for policies um, at the local level that um, support all of those things. So, you know, maybe it's encouraging your city to have a local procurement rule that says that 10% of what the city buys needs to come from local farms or uh, advocating to have a compost <laughs> production system put in at the municipal level. You know, those are all things that really um, actually make a difference and contribute to sort of our global soil health. I think those are great tips and it doesn't seem as overwhelming for someone like me to start taking smaller steps to do those things because I think it'll become more natural the more you do it. And I know I've talked about this before, but I'm excited to check out farmers markers, farmers markets to see what's available in the area. Cause I think sometimes that's the stopping point. You don't know where to go for your food. I think it's hard to find out where your foods come from. It may not once I dig in a little more, but I think that's kind of the challenging part. 
at this point in, in my life. And I'm sure many people feel the same way. Well, it is, you know, I just, I, I guess I'll acknowledge that it, um, it's, it's complicated often if you're shopping at the grocery store and it takes a lot of time and um, requires you to sort of shift the way that you think about those things. And, um, you know, going to the farmer's market, it's not open 12 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, it takes planning. And um, so it's, yeah, it's work. It's work, but it's, it's worth it. It really is. I'm, you know, it's kind of sounded like a little bit of complaint. I think it was, you know, it's just something that you need to be aware of. And if you're planning it, it's, it's very well worth it. When I know where my food comes from, I even feel good putting it on the table for my children. And, you know, just as a mom, it just makes you feel good. And so it's, it's something that's worth looking into and trying a little harder and reduce your waste. Oh my goodness. I know how I feel when I'm taking out bag after bag of trash in our household. And that's something my husband and I are trying to be really conscientious about of what goes in the garbage and using our food and being smart about it. And it saves money. <laughs> yeah, it does. I, I, I'll tell you a really quick story. So uh, one of my previous jobs was managing a farmer's market and um, we, I started a, a um, split waste stream program at that market. So um, all of the trash bins had uh, compostable materials, recyclable materials, and then stuff that actually should be going to the landfill. And um, every single market, we would collect all of that waste and then we would weigh it. And then at the end of the season, we looked at statistically, um, you know, how much was compostable, how much was recyclable, how much was supposed to go to the landfill. And um, 98% of the waste that we collected was compostable, which is a little bit higher than the average statistic of waste stream. 1.5% uh, was recyclable and only 0.5% of what typically goes to the landfill, you know, really actually needs to go there. Um, and I think that that's, you know, pretty telling in terms of um, having this amazing resource at our fingertips to, you know, keep farms healthy um, compost is a, a, you know, great amendment. It, um, you know, enables us to take something that is waste and turn it into something that is um, beneficial. Uh, so I, I'm always, that statistic continues to be um, amazing to me and a little bit inspiring to like really encourage people to think about, um, yeah, waste streams and, and how that works and what we should be doing with not just food waste, but any kind of carbon-based waste. It's really eye-opening, and I'm actually a little embarrassed about what my stats probably are as we're working towards it, but this is what people need to hear, because I don't think change is going to happen unless you are awakened to some of these stats that are coming at us, like what just happened with me, and it's composting. I'm a major fan of composting. Luckily, my husband loves it. He actually got me on board years ago with composting, nice. but there's so many benefits. I mean, the soil health, just reducing waste, what it does to your food when you're growing, I just think it's... Such an amazing, amazing thing that we have going on. And we've actually had quite a few podcasts that talk about the importance of soil health and water. Um, one, it was a little nerve-wracking because I was a little intimidated by just the wealth of knowledge that was in front of me. But I had five experienced Eastern Iowa farmers talking about um, degradation. I don't know if I said that right. Of Iowa soil and waterways and ideas to restore the land. And I think that was something that, that was one of the first times my eyes were really opened to soil health was that podcast. Um, the one takeaway that we received were that many listeners weren't aware of the soil and water problems across America, like me right here. 
So the, how, the Quivira has a program dedicated to land and water. Can you tell us about this program and the successes that you've had? Sure. So um, this, this program was really like our foundational program. And um, I think we have a, a number of different success stories, but I think the one I'll share with you today is about a 20-year-old project that we have working in the Carson National Forest, which is um, in the northeast corner of New Mexico. Um, we work there in the Comanche Creek watershed, and um, it was, I, I guess it's 18 years ago, 19 years ago, um, the Rio Grande cutthroat, cutthroat trout was um, potentially going to be listed uh, as an endangered species. And when that happens, it really shifts the way that people are able to use those public lands. Um, so they're very multi-use. They have a, a grazing lease. Um, people hunt there. Um, people recreate there. People go fishing there. Um, uh, hiking, camping. So a lot of different people use it for a lot of different reasons. And when um, you know you start getting species that are listed on the endangered species list, then you have to, you know, protect habitat, which means excluding some of those folks. And so um, we worked with a number of organizations like Trout Unlimited um, to begin a conversation and uh, collaboration with a grazing association who had the grazing lease on that property. And since that time, um, and it was it was essentially to um, put in erosion control structures to reduce um, the amount of sediment in the water um, because the uh, when you have high sediment loads it increases the temperature of the water which um, trout need nice cool temperatures to be able to reproduce um, so we uh, started working with the grazing association. Um, and working with experts in erosion control. And every year for the last 19 years, we have um, gone up and done some kind of project on either the main Comanche Creek or one of its tributaries. We bring, um, we do a four day workshop where we bring about 60 to 80 people up. We go on a big group camping trip and um, everybody gets dirty. We, um, actually go up and build these erosion control structures and talk about the significance of um, doing erosion control um, on arid landscapes um, in the West. Uh, you know, the places that we have water are really precious. Um, those are critical riparian zones. 80% of biodiversity um, lives in those areas. And so when you get erosion, um, also, what happens is those riparian areas start to shrink. Um, streams will start to incise, which means they start to cut down through the earth. And um, the water that usually sort of uh, permeates out across the top of the or the you know upper layers of the soil um, drops as the water level drops as the stream incises. So when you do erosion control, the other thing you're doing is you're starting to grade or bring the stream back up again so that that riparian zone uh, expands again further on either side of that creek, um, which increases the, that area that where that critical 80% of biodiversity thrives and survives. Um, and so that's our, our sort of cornerstone 
land and water <laughs> project, but it's exemplary, I think, of the kinds of education work that we're trying to do um, in a lot of different places all over New Mexico and um, now increasingly up into Southern Colorado. So in addition to that workshop, we also host another uh, a number of other land health workshops where um, we will work with ranchers. Um, they will invite us onto their land. They often are the folks leading the workshops. I think that um, farmer and rancher led education is really, really important because they know the land. Um, and we'll go and we'll talk about um, what's going on on their land. Often we'll look at erosion issues and talk about what are the solutions. Um, and often we'll also look at um, pasture management where animals are being grazed and what are ways that those animals can be utilized to uh, increase forage production and increase biodiversity um, through making sure that they're not there. Uh, too often, but also not um, too infrequently. Um, so yeah, that's uh, the, our land and water program is really about looking at um, solutions on the ground to work with um, producers for solutions that have both ecological and economic benefit. Because I guess that's the other piece of it is that when you've, um, you know, when you're grazing livestock, your livelihood depends on how healthy the grass is. And so all of these things are connected. So when you've got healthy streams, wider riparian areas, you're going to have more forage for your animals if you manage it the right way, which means that your um, ability to make a living also increases. And so, you know, it's sort of a big loop. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. And just what you're doing through these different programs, that education piece is key. As I'm sitting here listening to you speak, I, my eyes are, I think are just wide open, um, listening to everything that you've told me. So thank you for putting the education piece out there because I think it's important for everyone to be aware of because I don't think most are. And like you said, it's, it's really necessary that we are aware. And you've talked about this a lot, but go ahead and tell us why the health of our soil and water is so important to you and probably for everything you've learned. And you just went on a little bit about that. Um. I mean, that's such a, that's such a big question. <laughs> um, you know, I think the health of our, I mean, really the health of our soil and water is critical because our, our planet is in crisis with climate change. And um, we as a species are in, in crisis because of um, the way that we practice agriculture and, um, you know, really becoming uh, advocates for soil is critical. Soil is our, our, our best tool for mitigation of climate change. Um, it is an enormous potential carbon sink. It also is one of the largest contributors right now to climate change, the way that we're practicing agriculture. You know, we're losing um, a huge amount of topsoil. I was just reading a little bit before our interview that six pounds of topsoil is lost for every pound of food produced. And this is from the um, Natural Resource Conservation Service at the USDA. And that topsoil is essentially carbon. <laughs> And so, but, you know, that topsoil could also be capturing carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, so when I think about the health of our soil and the health of our water, 
um, what I'm really thinking about is like the health of our planet and our ability to continue to produce food and live here um, in a way that isn't, you know, sort of uh, in constant crisis mode. So it's, it just seems so scary when I think about um, the path our planet can be on. But I also feel a little better every time I talk to, you know, someone who's really trying to change literally the world by what you're teaching through soil health, really. So I start feeling a little better. Well, and just sort of, just sort of to bring it back to the first part of our conversation, you know, I think that we are at a moment to me that is like both really challenging, but also really hopeful. So, um, you know, the fact that we have this really immense generational shift that is happening in agriculture means that we can be training a whole new cohort of um, food producers to come in with a set of values and practices that are predicated on making sure that um, the ground stays covered, that the production method is building soil, um, that it is protecting biodiversity. Um, and not to say that, that current farmers don't have those priorities. I think that many of them do, but um, with this transition, but those who don't, you know, it's going to be harder to change somebody's mind who has, you know, been doing, has been farming a particular way their entire lives, who's at the end of their career to come in and say, hey, we really want you to change all of your practices. You know, I, I think about um, being in that position. And it's like, I don't think I would want to change, you know, you can look at a lot of other professions that have, you know, sort of analogous um, situations, you know, it's like if you look at somebody at the end of their career in an office and you introduce a new piece of software, you know, they're not going to be the people who are jumping up and down to adopt it probably. And so I think with the generational shift, we have an opportunity to really um, expedite adoption of practices that um, are prioritizing healthy soil. And hopefully that's exactly what's going to happen. And it's through the education that you're giving. And um, so we have the Quivira Conference. And when I first heard about this, the founding members of Vitable attended the conference last year. And they were with their partners, Mike Calcrate, and they had so many amazing things to say about that conference. So can you tell us a little bit about the upcoming 2019 conference? Yes, I would love to tell you about our conference this fall. So um, we will, um, the conference will be the week before Thanksgiving. Um, so I think that's the 19th to the 22nd. It will be in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the Hotel Albuquerque. Um, registration for the conference will open, uh, I think, the beginning of July. Um, and uh, the focus of our, so we, we will also collaborate with Holistic Management International and the American Grass-Fed Association. Again, they are great partners and it brings in a lot of fun and diverse perspectives to have those partners putting on this event. Um, so this year, uh, the conference is called Health from the Soil Up. Um, and I'm going to read again. So health a state of complete well-being can describe everything from soils to economies. Health of people, animals, plants, and the whole living planet are fundamentally connected. At its root, the source of health is in the land, which provides food, medicine, biodiversity, tradition, and home. Regenerative agriculture embodies a shift from extractive practices towards holism, prevention, and proactivity. Making this shift will require bravery, humility, innovation, ingenuity, and sometimes at first failure. 
the systemic connections between food, medicine, plants, animals, soil, and climate impact the health of people and the planet. The enormity of these systems and their relationships can both inspire and be daunting, but ultimately, we all play a role and have responsibility in how they function and contribute to health. So then we have questions. I love questions. I'm somebody who really um, uh, likes to um, curate this event around some critical questions. So this year, the questions will be, how do we reconnect and learn from existing knowledge, practices, and experience about the intrinsic connections between health and nature? What can food production and land stewardship teach us about health and its cycles? How do we engage with the land in ways that heal and nourish soil, our bodies, wildlife, communities, economies, and the climate? How do we adapt agriculture for healthy, regenerative food and medicine systems into the future? So we're going to dig in pretty deep to this idea that Soil is connected to food, is connected to health of animals, health of people, and health of the planet. Um, and uh, there's, there's a lot of great speakers that we've got lined up. We'll post what the program is here pretty soon. Um, we're going to have a panel of physicians speaking as our keynote. Um, so I think that that should be pretty interesting. Um, so yeah, I, you know, and it's, it's open to anybody who wants to come. Um, and it's a kind of unusual format for a conference. Um, we have a single track plenary and then we have um, sort of in-depth discussion sessions. Um, so it's not like you're going to show up and, and feel like you're going to miss a bunch of things. Like everybody is in it together. Even though there's like 600 people who come, it's like everybody gets the same information. So it's a fun event. Let's say it sounds like a great conference and you can just tell how excited you are by the way you're speaking about it. And I think that's a lot of fun. You know, just your passion behind it. Yeah, I, I love it. it um, I went to the conference before I actually started working for Kavira. Um, we've done this conference for almost 20 years also. And um, the content is really great, but I have to say the community is really like the thing that makes it. Um, it feels like a family reunion. Um, and so, you know, if you're looking for an experience that does not feel like your typical conference, um, this one is it. <laughs> Well, that sounds amazing. And hopefully people look into that. I'm sure your um, attendance is going to be fabulous. Like I said, the members of Biteable had nothing but amazing things to say about last year's conference. And I well, think it's I, great that you have a panel of physicians on there. I think that's super exciting. Well, and I, I hope you'll come join us. We did something last year called our podcast corner, and maybe you will come and um, join us as one of the hosts in our podcast corner. Oh, so check that out. That sounds cool. <laughs> So also, aside from the conference, I had an amazing um, time talking with Ann Adams, who, I mean, as you know, is the Executive Director of Holistic Management International and one of your collaborators. So can you describe a little bit about your relationship with HMI? Um, yes. Uh, HMI is a really important partner to Kivira, um, and we have worked together in a lot of different ways. I actually met Anne before I started working at Kavira. I ran a um, veteran farming project in downtown Albuquerque, and she taught classes to the vets that we were working with on um, holistic decision-making and holistic planning. Um, so that was my introduction. But um, when I started uh, as the director of Kavira, we started a conversation about ways that we can work together. And um, she now... Uh, holistic management offers, um, they, they provide the classroom education to our apprentices. So we have 
19 different ranches that we work with um, in four different states, Montana, New Mexico, Colorado, and California. Um, the apprentices who work with those ranchers are there for eight months. And while they're there, they have um, five HMI courses that they do. So that's one way that we work together. Um, we now co-produce this conference. Um, we're also working on something called uh, the New Mexico Coalition to Enhance Working Lands, which is um, figuring out ways that we as nonprofit organizations can foster collaboration for the health of all of our working lands in New Mexico. Um, because the, you know, the challenges of building uh, soil health and healthy watersheds um, and agriculture systems that um, support people and the planet, like it's a big group effort, you know, it's going to take all of us getting on board. And so, um, you know, I think I have to commend HMI as a real leader in figuring out how we do that and um, helping to hold space for people to show up and participate because collaboration is also hard. <laughs> you know, you've got to really um, check the ego at the door and be willing to sit down and focus on the priorities and, and not sort of the emotional response that they sometimes um, evoke um, when you're working on issues that are close to the heart. So um, yeah, that, that's a little bit about how we work with HMI. And I feel like there are probably a number of other ways too that are less formalized. Um, yeah. Well, this is how change happens. It's when people like, you know, you and Ad Adams come together to make change. And you can see the passion in both of you and your teams, I'm sure. And yeah, when there's passion involved, it can be a little, I'm sure, difficult to check your egos, like you said. But the bigger question is you want change and you want the same type of change and that's when I think you're able to work together and make those things happen and so I just think that's absolutely amazing and it gives me peace of mind knowing there's people out there like you doing that because like I said <laughs> I still feel like what do I do but with the tips I've been receiving over the last year it's it makes it more achievable when you have a plan it doesn't seem yeah. so big anymore um, so I like to ask this of all my guests. Why is knowing where your, your food comes from so important to you? Um, for me, I think that, I mean, there's all the reasons that I just talked about, but um, food is sacred. And, uh, you know, when I know the ground that it came out of, when I know the hands that have tended it, um, it's, it's significant, you know, there's a spiritual layer to um, preparing food and eating food that uh, is, is important and that its origin is important for that reason. Um, and, you know, I think I appreciate it more deeply when uh, I know where it came from and can really like reflect on all the resources, uh, you know, time and energy and um, commitment that went into producing it. I like that you said just touching on appreciation for the food. I think sometimes in our busy world, it's just something that you can do in the car or a real quick bite before you're running out the door. It is, it is important to really appreciate your food and where it comes from. <laughs> yeah. 
So if you had a vision for agriculture, the future of farming, what would it be? Um, I, this might one of my new favorite things to, to say and talk about. So like when I think about the future of farming, um, the, the picture that comes to mind in my head is um, I imagine walking into the coffee shop in a small town that, you know, is surrounded by agriculture. It could be in Iowa. It could be, you know, a small ranch town here in New Mexico. And, um, you know, there are two ranchers sitting there having their morning coffee together. And I like to think about what they're talking about, because this is to me sort of, you know, think about the future of agriculture. And they're sitting there and, you know, they're having a conversation and they're not talking about like, you know, corn futures or, um, but they're talking about, you know, uh, what does their applicant pool for next year's apprentices look like? Um, or they're talking about uh, um, their soil organic matter, you know, and bragging to one another about who has more soil organic matter. Um, you know, if I were to paint a picture of what is the future of agriculture, that that's part of it, you know, is like thinking about reframing typical pictures of what we think about with agriculture now um, to what it could be in the future. Um, I think another piece for me about the future of agriculture is that um, I imagine a world where we are all um, to a small degree engaged in food production. I think that this is really important is that, um, you know, even if it's a tomato plant on your porch or basil plant in your window, um, we should all be making some of our own food, growing some of our own food. I think it's, you know, how we understand um, how plants work and how animals work and how, um, you know, it is part of a bigger system, biological system, ecological system uh, on the planet. And um, so a, a future of agriculture is not, is one where that we change that 2% statistic, you know, where when we we get closer to like 10% of our population is primarily engaged in agriculture as their profession. And a hundred percent of our population is, you know, even if it's one plant producing some of their own food. You really hit both sides there. You talked about your vision and I loved it. It was like a story of the farmers and the way of thinking. That's a typical thing for the farmer to talk about their soil health and what's important to them, but also just everyday people, because I've had, this is fun, I've been talking to my husband and he's had these great ideas of what we can grow in our house even throughout the winter. Because sometimes we do feel stuck in these winter months and it's, what can we do inside? And we have great plans. So I'm hoping, you know, this winter we've got some amazing things going, but it means a lot and it's, it's shaping the future of our children, the way they're used to growing up too. And so maybe that can keep taking shape as they grow older. Yeah. I mean, I think it also sort of touches on that food waste part because, you know, when you're making, when you're growing some of your own food, you understand all of the labor that goes into it. And it's like that tomato that you just picked off that vine is, is precious. That took a lot of work, you know, and maybe that translates to the other things that you get at the grocery store. And it's like, let's not waste this because it, it took a lot of energy to make it. 
Oh, I absolutely agree because people don't have endless amounts of time. And so when you're putting that time and effort into something, you want to use it and it probably will help you plan more your family meals or when you're going to use this vegetable or this fruit or whatever you have been growing in. I think it's just better for family in general. It might bring you to the table more um, to have, you know, conversations based on what you've grown. And I think kids can take part in that too. And being an educator, I just think it's fabulous. Um, well, you're, you're an educator, you know, yourself with the soil and everything else you're doing. So thank you. So this is fun for me as I just talk about what I want to grow. You talk about how you like to experiment in your kitchen, um, on your bio, on the website, and we love trying out new recipes. I'm we're, I'm dreaming right now with my husband of what we're going to cook. We just remodeled our kitchen. We were without a kitchen for two months. So we're dreaming like, what are we going to cook when we have our kitchen back? <laughs> so what is your favorite food that you like to cook? Or what is one of the, your favorite things that you've come up with? Um, my favorite food changes all of the time. I feel like it's very seasonal. Um, I mean, but I do have staples. So um, I'm a big fan of root vegetables, all manner of root vegetables. Um, I love sweet potatoes. Uh, my garden this year will be primarily sweet potatoes. <laughs> I like to plant things in my garden where I can plant it once and kind of leave it alone until I need to harvest it. And sweet potatoes definitely fall in that category. Um, and uh, lately, you know, it's greens season. So um, there's all manner of braising greens and salad greens that are available right now. That's, you know, the, the predominant produce at the market. And so um, recently I've been thinking a lot about salad dressings because it's like you can do so many different things with greens if you think creatively about the way that you dress the salad. Um, And so, you know, it's like different herbs give different flavors. What are different herbs you can put it together in combination? You know, a salad dressing is essentially an oil, an acid, um, salt, maybe a little bit of sweet and an herb. And, you know, there's so many different ways that you can mix those basic ideas together. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been doing a lot of lately is, is thinking about, you know, what are things I can go pick out of the garden or go even like wild forage and, um, put into a blender and, make those greens even more delicious. Absolutely. Well, sweet potatoes are like my comfort food. Yeah. (laughs) I love sweet potatoes. Um, But also when it comes to the dressings, I feel like that's where I get stumped. So I'm going to have to get some recipes from you to get some good ideas to get the kitchen. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm happy to send them to you. Um, You know, this is a a sort of a side note, but I, I was the editor of the Edible magazine here for seven years. And it was by far my... I loved many aspects of that job. I loved talking to farmers, but I really liked writing the recipes. I feel like writing a good recipe is a true art. And so I'm happy to send you some recipes and um, maybe we can trade some recipes if you've got a favorite also. Oh, absolutely. And I'm definitely going to take you up on that. Cause like I said, that is where I get stumped. I'm not quite sure what to do. So I may, I'll start with you and then maybe I can kind of start learning the taste of what needs to be put together. <laughs> cool. Sounds good. So if there's one big takeaway today that you'd like to leave the listeners with, how would you sum that up? Um, I guess there are two. Uh, and, and you've touched on some of these. Um, produce some of your own food and know where your food comes from. It's really important um, and is sort of the first and most critical step to uh, supporting 
healthy soil and healthy water and ultimately the health of our planet. Um, and then, you know, the second thing I guess is connected to that, which is, um, you know, consider being a farmer. We need them. <laughs> we need people who are interested in being land stewards and who are willing to be brave and take that risk and um, really, you know, be out there uh, on the, the forefront of um, land stewardship. So um, I think that that's my, my message. Yeah, I think those are huge takeaways for everyone to listen to because I think they are all super important and I appreciate you telling us those. So how can our listeners find you and what's the best way that we can support Quivira? Um, we can be found online in a number of different places. Our website is kaviracoalition.org. Um, we are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, in all of those places, it is at Kavira Coalition, except for on Twitter, we are at Kavira Ag Ranch. Um, and we're very accessible. Uh, so, you know, you can email us. I'm Sarah at KaviraCoalition.org, or you can call us up anytime. I love talking about all of these things, and I love to be a connector also. Um, I feel like that's uh, something that we do really well um, is, you know, when people call us up and they say, I, I'm looking for, you know, an intern this year, or I need to find a dung beetle expert. <laughs> we do our best to connect them to those people. So, um, and I think that the, the best way to support Kivira is to become a member. We are a membership organization. Um, and we have a, a new agrarian level, which is $3 a month. We have a regular individual membership level, which is $5 a month. And, um, members are really critical to us. So those would be the ways that I could, I should, I would say that you can support us and you can also listen to our podcast down to earth. Um, so if you like this podcast, that's a, a, another good way to support us. Down to earth. That sounds great. And it sounds, it really sounds like the podcast I need to listen to, to continue to grow my knowledge on the subject area. That's been really eye opening this last year. Cool. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm excited that you're digging into it. I, you know, I think there, we need, the world also needs more people like you who are interested in cross pollinating, you know, a, a, a need or a curiosity about health with where our food comes from with um, the health of our land and the health of our planet. So I commend you for um, diving into those topics. I think it's great. Well, thank you. They really go hand in hand, the more I found out. And so I'm, I'm definitely not stopping here. So I really do appreciate you, Sarah, taking your time and really just sharing your information with the listeners here at Biteable because they're going to you know, take away many things for this podcast and hopefully they check out the website. It's great. I've been on it numerous times and finding you on the different social media platforms that you're on. So thank you again so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. Have a great night. You too. Bye. Bye. We'd like to remind our audience that the views of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Biteable or of our staff personally. The purpose of the Biteable podcast is to encourage spirited dialogue around topics like food, nutrition, animal and human welfare, and the food system. Part of having an open and spirited dialogue is accepting that others have views that are different than ours and working to understand how their experiences have differed from our own. We encourage all listeners to do their own research on any and all topics discussed during the show. That being said, we hope you enjoyed the podcast and thanks for listening.